Thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Tonight with Abby Phillips starts right now. Hey, Caitlin, thank you very much. And stand by for us because I want to talk about your new reporting tonight. And in case everyone missed it, CNN is now reporting tonight that prosecutors investigating efforts to overturn the election are very interested in a chaotic White House meeting that took place in the final days of the Trump administration. Now, that meeting included Rudy Giuliani. So, Caitlin, what do we know about why special counsel Jack Smith is pressing uh, on some of these witnesses about this meeting? Yeah, this is interesting, Abby, because we believe that Jack Smith is in the closing days of the January 6th investigation. Closing period, I should note. We don't know that it's actually days But it does appear to be winding down as they've had this flurry of activity recently. And one thing that that I and our team have learned is that as they were going through this, they have been asking questions for some time, but also recently about that chaotic Oval Office meeting that happened six weeks after Donald Trump lost the election. I think a lot of people would remember it from the January 6th hearings where Attorneys in the White House were essentially pitted against these outside advisors to Trump, outside advisors who wanted him to do crazy things like sign an executive order about getting the U.S. military to seize voting machines for those seven states that he lost. They were talking about martial law. They were talking about making Sidney Powell a special counsel to investigate voter fraud. That was at the center of this heated meeting where, you know, insults were hurled. A lot of shouting was happening in that meeting. And we are now told that recently Jack Smith and his team have been asking witnesses about it, whether that's with the investigators or before the grand jury. They were doing this several months ago with some witnesses. They've been doing it with more witnesses recently. One of those is Rudy Giuliani, who we know went before and sat down voluntarily with Jack Smith's team last month for two days back to back. He was asked about a range of topics, we are told, His attorney is not commenting on this tonight, but we are told by sources that that was something that he was asked about in that meeting. So just raising a lot of questions of what the the end result of this investigation could look like. And that's really what this is all about. I mean, we are now coming upon what could be the end game here. We know the January 6th uh, grand jury met again today. Do we have a sense of what's next? I think a big question is what, if there are charges, what they could focus on. Everyone is kind of trying to play this game, even attorneys in the former president's orbit as well. Is it going to focus on the fake electors and that scheme to, to have them in the seven states that he lost? Will it focus more explicitly on the figures at the center of this? John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, Patrick Byrne, who was the former CEO of Overstock. Those are the big questions, and I don't think anyone has a sense Of course, the other big question is whether or not Donald Trump himself is indicted in that investigation or if he's an unindicted co-conspirator or if he's not mentioned at all. I mean, I think there's just so many questions and it's such a bigger, broader investigation than the documents investigation. I think that's why people are having a hard time uh, kind of guessing what it's going to look like. Yeah. And of course, added to all of that, you uh, have the elements in Arizona, which you've been reporting on this week as well. This is a sprawling case and, and we'll see where it all turns out. Caitlin, thank you so much for staying a little bit later for of us. Of course. Appreciate Thanks, it. Abby. And speaking of January 6th, a judge today ruling that a convicted rioter cannot attend a festival this weekend in Missouri to honor those who stormed the Capitol. Kenneth Thomas was convicted last month of seven crimes, including assaulting an officer. And I want to bring in now Thomas's attorney, John Pierce. He is the founder and chairman of the National Constitutional Law Union. And he's represented actually 35 January 6th defendants 
in addition to Kenneth Thomas. So, John, thanks for being here. First, I just want to start with this. I mean, he is awaiting sentencing, your client here. Um, Why would a judge give him permission to attend a festival that is essentially celebrating the thing he was convicted for? Well, I would take issue with um, the idea that this is, uh, you know, celebrating um, uh, the things that he was convicted for. I'd, I would actually take some issue with the language in some of your um, lead up about, um, you know, folks storming the Capitol. Uh, January 6th was a very complex event. Um, there were a lot of people um, who uh, engaged in various kinds of conduct. Uh, Mr. Thomas, Kenneth Joseph Thomas, uh, was found to have not not guilty of engaging in uh, violence on the Capitol grounds. Well he, yeah. well, he was found guilty of assaulting a police officer. Uh, so, so the statute that you're referring to actually uh, contains uh, multiple kinds of conduct uh, that can be uh, the basis for liability uh, under it. So uh, you could have the typical, typical kind of assault that you're speaking of or impeding or obstructing a police officer in um, their duties. And so he was found not guilty of engaging in violence on the Capitol grounds. That was a specific charge. And so we believe that the jury found that uh, in that count that they found him guilty on, uh, that would have been impeding or obstructing an officer, not not assaulting an officer. Look, I think the issue here, though, is January 6th. This is a festival that is about... Uh, celebrating, honoring, whatever you want to describe it, the event that led to your client being convicted of multiple counts and also several of your other clients. So a judge, why would any judge in their right mind allow him to do that? Uh, so, so I push back on you a little bit and then come back to your question. Um, the, I mean, these folks what, are. The, can you answer my question first I, and then push I, back? I, I will come right to it. Um, yeah. the, these folks are not going to, uh, I believe it's in Missouri, um, to celebrate any kind of you know, armed insurrection. Nobody's been charged with insurrection. They're not going there to celebrate violence. These people are going there to pray. They're going there to have a sense of community. Uh, these people have been through an incredible ordeal. They are up against the most powerful uh, uh, forces on the planet with unlimited resources. They're trying to raise money so that they can pay very limited legal fees um, that they're able to pay. So they have some funds for commissary um, in, in prison when they're detained. They're not going there to celebrate um, any kind of violence. Now, we requested of Judge Friedrich, who I respect very, very much, and I, I, I hope and I think that she knows that, um, we, we requested a modification of his conditions so that he could attend. He is a minister. Um, he wanted to go there to pray and be with this uh, community. She, she denied that request, um, uh, which you know, she has the power to do. Uh, we respect her decision. We're obviously disappointed in it. Um, uh, but, you, you know, you got to remember, these folks do not give up uh, their First Amendment rights. Well, is, your, is your client remorseful about his actions on January 6th? I, I think, that, as he said at trial, I think there are certain things um, that he uh, wished had happened differently. Uh, but, you know, the trial laid out very clearly that he was there to have his voice be heard. He was there to protect other uh, people. There's very clear evidence uh, that there was excessive force by police officers, and he was trying to assist an elderly person who was who was being beaten by batons when he was on the ground. Look, I, I have to stop you there, because mm. honestly, we watched what happened on January 6th, okay? And you can make sort of legalistic arguments about what exactly your client was convicted of and what he was not. There's no question that there was violence at the Capitol, that officers were assaulted on that day. There is no question about that. There's also no question that your client was uh, uh, participated in pushing back against law enforcement officers who were doing their jobs, which was protecting the Capitol that day. So I, I just, 
we have to put that on the table. But I do want to ask you this. Just you're his attorney, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, he hasn't even been sentenced yet. It isn't, I don't see the, the sort of legal wisdom here of, of him asking to do this when it could aggravate potentially how he is sentenced in this case. Uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Joseph Thomas, like many of my defendants, like many January 6th defendants, feel very, very strongly um, that, uh, to a large extent, they went to Washington, D.C. that day to have their voices be heard. Um, uh, there was, look, the, the narrative that, with all due respect to your network, uh, sometimes has been pushed that this was a, a you know, just a, a violent event it, um, that there was violence on both sides. There was violence. Violent, there was no, 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 no. There no. was violence. There, it was a violent I, event. I, I look. Tr- it was a violent event. Police tr- officers were there. Tr- trust doing me, their Abby. Jobs. Tr- Abby. Some of the police officers were not doing their jobs. Some of the police officers were going way beyond doing their jobs, including unjustified lethal force. Okay, so it, it is. Look, January sixth is listen, not as simple, John. The, a mob was attacking the Capitol. They were trying to break break into the chamber. Some of them were armed. Many of them assaulted police officers to the point of permanent long-term injury. Look, I know that you have 35 clients here that you are representing in these cases. I know that in some ways, this event, which is actually also a fundraising event, would help pay for your legal bills. But at the end of the day... He was convicted of his for his actions on that day. He is probably, you would agree, facing jail time. So the seriousness of the crime is really not in question here. And I also don't think that it is legitimate in any way to say that just because there were a couple of people milling around, that it wasn't an the objective was of that. That, day that, that is a that, that is what a, happened that is a fundamentally that, that is violence. that is an unfair way to carry the vast majority of individuals, it, it, you, you, it, have to, it you have to let me finish. Point, you have to let me finish. Look, the, the, the vast, vast majority, majority, the vast, I know this stuff better than you, with all due respect, I, way better. The vast majority of individuals who are on the Capitol grounds were there and they were peaceful. There, there were obviously. Uh, that does not include your client. I, I, we argued at trial that it did, well, and he was found not guilty. He was found not guilty. He was found not guilty of violence on the Capitol grounds. Not guilty. He was found guilty was in found, seven of the counts. He was, will, will he? Do you think it's likely that he'll serve prison time for those counts? I do think it's likely. Yes. Um, this this uh, was the this was the best jury verdict so far of any January sixth case, which I think says quite a lot about the seriousness of the accusations against a lot of your clients. But John, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much Thank you. for joining us. And we have a busy show tonight. Coming up next, 2024 presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy joins me live on the 2024 race and several domestic and foreign policy issues, plus the mysterious whereabouts of the revolt leader. Uh, that Russia just got uh, uh, in Russia just got clearer, and the discovery includes gold and also wigs. And in the mystery of that cocaine found at the White House, a forensics expert will join me next on how they are finding the culprit. Tonight is the mercenary leader who led a revolt against Vladimir Putin's power still alive. His whereabouts have been a mystery, but today we learn that Prigozhin is not actually in Belarus. It's unclear if his Wagner fighters will move to Belarus, and it's throwing more confusion on that deal that supposedly ended the armed insurrection. 
Now, it comes as Russian state TV is releasing new images of a raid on Prigozhin St. Petersburg property, footage showing money, wigs and gold found at the property. And it all raises questions about what Moscow's plans are for Prigozhin. Joining me now on this, plus many, many other issues, is Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Welcome, sir, to the program. I do want to start there on the war in Ukraine. It has obviously taken on renewed urgency after Prigozhin's uprising and Kyiv's offensive. And you've proposed, as I think many people know now, a 72-hour window as president, if you were elected, for Putin to agree to a deal that would pull him away from Beijing in exchange for the United States ending, effectively, its support for Ukraine. But my question to you is, why would Putin stop at only parts of Ukraine that they've already uh, they've already invaded when he's hinted that he has much broader ambitions for Ukraine. So, look, Putin would accept a deal because it allows him to get achieve something he wants. He does not enjoy being Xi Jinping's little brother in that relationship. But the reason I would do that deal is that it would still advance American interests because the top military threat that we face is the China-Russia alliance. Nobody else in either political party is talking about it. But if you combine Russia's nuclear stockpile and its hypersonic missile capabilities, combined with China's economy and its large landmass and the fact that it's an adversary to the U.S., as well as its naval capacity, they outmatch us. So I think our top objective should be to pull Putin out of that alliance. Putin does not enjoy being the second fiddle to Xi Jinping. That's why I think he'll take that deal. But I think that we do have to end that Ukraine war by freezing the current lines of control. Well, look, uh, I think the other question here is if you basically give Putin what they have seized by force, how would that stop China from seizing by force Taiwan, for example, I think the principle here, many people would argue, is that there is a world order in which you don't just get to seize territory by waging wars on your neighbors. So China is has actually one constraint on going after Taiwan, and I want to tap into that constraint. Right now, Xi Jinping has confidence that Vladimir Putin is in his camp, and his bet is that the U.S. will not want to go after two allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. But if Putin is no longer in Xi Jinping's camp, then Xi Jinping will absolutely have to think twice before going after Taiwan. I do think Taiwan is more important for the U.S. than is Ukraine because we depend on the semiconductors that come from that island nation that power our modern way of life, including our cell phones, our cameras, all modern technology, our cars, and so on. So that's why I think that Taiwan and Ukraine are not really the same thing. We shouldn't treat them the same either. But it is by ending the war in Ukraine and doing that deal that requires Putin to exit his alliance with China that we also deter China from going after Taiwan in a way that avoids war. That should one, be the top one other policy component objective of the next of, president. One other component of this, of course, is that Putin and Xi Jinping have much more than just economic ties. They also are both authoritarian leaders. And they, on a sort of values proposition, have more in common with each other, don't you think? Well, you could have said the same thing about Mao Zedong and Brezhnev back in 1972 when Nixon made the move of pulling Mao out from under Brezhnev's hands. And I think that back then Mao was the little brother in that relationship. Today, Putin is the new Mao. So I think that I don't trust Vladimir Putin on anything. 
but I do trust him to follow his self-interest. And I think if we're willing to normalize economic relations with Russia, if we're willing to freeze those current lines of control, if we're willing to guarantee that NATO will not admit Ukraine, as Vladimir Putin asked for in late 2021 before he invaded, then I think it will be in Putin's interest to actually renormalize those relations with the West as long as he exits that military relationship with China. And I would also require that he remove nuclear weapons from Kaliningrad, which borders Poland, as well as to remove the Russian military from the Western Hemisphere. That's how we advance American interests while ending the war in Ukraine. I want to turn now to a domestic policy issue. And this is actually something that you have not been particularly vocal about. And it's entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, which it's an issue that actually has become a, a point of contention between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Question to you is, would you make changes to Social Security and Medicare if you were elected? So the classic debate right now is between tax increases on the Democrat side versus cuts to entitlements among some on the Republican side. I personally believe there is a better way, a third way. Focus on GDP growth itself. I'm the only candidate in either party who believes and acts on the fact that we can grow our way out of our problems. It you is true that if we remain at less than 1%. You think Social Security yes. and Medicare needing to, uh, in, if, I'm, I'm presenting to you what many of your Republican colleagues say. They say that it's going to be insolvent in just a couple of decades. Do so you think that you can grow your way out of that problem without addressing the fundamentals of those programs? That is correct. If you continue to grow at this year's current GDP growth rate of less than 1%, then absolutely we are going to be in trouble in 20 years. We run out of money. But for most of our national history, we've grown at over three to four plus percent GDP growth. I have a clear plan of how to restore that in relatively short order. First is you you unlock American energy. Will you pledge Drill, frack, burn coal, put people back to work. Will you pledge then to not touch Social Security and Medicare? Uh, Let's take into consideration your economic plans. But would you pledge not to touch Social Security and Medicare if you were elected president? I do. And in fact, the irony is, is that when we're growing at a high GDP growth rate again, by the time I'm out of office in January 2033, we will be growing at over 4%. Ironically, it's actually when the country is at its strongest economically, when our citizens are making more money, that we can then have a rational conversation about whether we have the political consensus to draw distinctions between people who have, say, made $10 million or more in their lifetime versus those who have not when it comes to security, Social Security or Medicare. All right. But and right now is not you, that environment. Americans ask, have, in a shrinking economy, we should not cut entitlements. Can I ask you about another issue? This is also something that your opponents, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, have called for, including DeSantis very recently, which is an end to birthright citizenship. What's your position on that? Would you end birthright citizenship? I think for a period of time, I think it's going to be necessary in this country because we have an influx of migrants across that southern border, 14,000 plus per day by some estimates crossing that southern border. That is not the rule of law. That is the abandonment of the rule of law. So if migrants are coming illegally, intentionally to be able to establish an illegal toehold in the United States, then I think that that's something that we should not abide in this country. And we should say that you were... I, I, we should say also, I mean, you were, you're, both of your parents are Im- immigrants to the United States, so you would have been a beneficiary 
of birthright citizenship. But you now are saying you would ban that for people coming into the country. And what is the period of time for which that would be the case? For people coming into the country illegally. That's the key distinction. And people make this mistake all the time. And I think you got to be really careful when you talk about the difference between legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. One is founded on following the rule of law. The other is founded on breaking the rule of law. That might be and the case, but I'm just saying that border security and immigration are not the same as issue. It's, what I'm saying is that birthright citizenship as it is currently in law does not make that distinction between whether that person was born to someone legally or not. So you are saying that even though birthright citizenship for you was something that was in play, you would take it off the table now. And my question is also, how long would that be the case? And also, how would you do it? Would you go to Congress for a constitutional amendment? Well, actually, I've supported the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. I'll actually go one step further on this, Abby, is that I don't think someone just because they're born in this country, even if they're a sixth generation American, should automatically enjoy all the privileges of citizenship until they've actually earned it. So one of the things I've said is that every high school student who graduates from high school should have to pass the same civics test that every immigrant has to pass in order to become a citizen of this country. I believe that there are civic duties attached to citizenship, so much so that I don't think you should automatically get your right to vote at age 18 unless you have passed that same citizenship test that immigrants have had to pass right. or else have served the country. Uh, under, so, understood. I mean, this is part of my I, broader pro-civic vision. I, I, I understand that, although I think there are some questions about why yeah. uh, younger Americans would have less citizenship rights than older Americans. But I do want to move on here. Um, you, you've been seeing a bump in recent polling, uh, and uh, that is probably as a result of you being in a lot of different places and campaigning. And in New Hampshire, former President Trump had some unusually warm words for you. I want you to take a listen. Actually, Vivek is, is yeah, well, Ramishwamy is leading most of our candidates. And you know why? Because he says Trump is one of the greatest presidents in the history of our country. And I said, I like that guy. I like him. I said, are you sure he's running against me? You know, that's a pretty severe statement, but, but he's very good. He's actually a pretty good guy. So what do you make of that? I, I, I should say some people have suggested that Trump is using your candidacy to undermine his biggest rival right now, which is DeSantis. We're very early in this race, so anybody who's trying to draw who the front runners are before the first debate, I think is missing the plot, just like they would have in 2016. I'm running to lead this nation forward. It's true that Trump and I have a couple things in common. We're both outsiders who have had success in business, who did not grow up in the world of politics. And I think we have a lot of common cause, both in standing for the America First agenda. But I'm in this race to take that America First agenda to the next level, to actually secure the southern border by moving the military to secure that border, shutting down government agencies that should not exist. I've said that I would end affirmative action by executive order, by rescinding the one that Lyndon Johnson wrote into law that every other Republican president since then could have negated. So in many ways, I'm going further than Trump, but I also hope to unite the country by doing it based on first principles and moral authority. So do I respect a lot of his accomplishments for this country? Absolutely. And I've been unapologetic about saying so. I'm in this race as the first millennial ever to run for this nomination to take that to the next level because I have fresh legs and I'm reaching the next generation while I do it. 
I, I have to ask you, would you be open to being Trump's running mate? I would not. I am actually focused on winning the presidency. If you're like me, got two young sons at home making the sacrifices that we are, putting over $15 million of my money into this campaign already. Hard-earned money, not what I inherited. I didn't inherit money. You know what? You make those sacrifices if you want to actually drive a national revival. Like Ronald Reagan did it in 1980. You know, there was the Reagan Revolution. I, uh, I say in a, in a good-spirited way, we're looking for the Ramaswamy Revolution so in 2024. Did, did and that's I what I think you, we're going to deliver. Did I hear you say you've put in $50 million into your campaign so far? Oh, over 15, 15 is what I said. Yep, 15 so million dollars. And so how much, yes. where will you stop on self-funding? We'll stop at nothing. To be honest with you, we've gotten also over 60,000 unique donors. I haven't said that, I think, in in other settings yet. We crossed 60,000 unique donors at the start of July. I know many other candidates are talking about 40,000 being a tough threshold for the Republican debate stage. I'm a first-time candidate. I've never had a political donor or donor list in my life. We've already crossed 60,000. So this is a grassroots campaign. People are responding to the message of putting American interests first, but doing it based on principles and moral foundations. And I think that's going to take us not only all the way to the White House, but to a national revival in the eight years thereafter. That's what I'm looking to lead. All right, Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you very much for joining us tonight on all of those issues. Thank you, Abby. And up next for us, the Secret Service is still trying to uncover who brought a small bag of cocaine into the West Wing. We'll hear from a forensic expert. Plus, the history of drugs at the White House is quite long, actually. We'll explore that in a moment. The mystery deepens. Federal law enforcement still working to figure out how a dime-sized bag of cocaine made it into the White House. The substance was found earlier this week near the ground floor entrance of the West Wing. And a law enforcement official tells CNN that additional tests are being conducted, including DNA and fingerprint analysis. So for more, I want to bring in Kathy Corrado. She's the executive director of Syracuse University's Forensic and National Security Science Institute. Uh, Kathy, thanks for joining us. So uh, I wonder, this DNA and fingerprint analysis is being done on this baggie. What is that process like? What kinds of tools are being used and uh, what other kinds of testing could be useful here? Uh, so basically what uh, happens when we get typically uh, drug evidence into a crime lab is that they're going to first separate the drug evidence from the packaging. So the they'll separate the physical solid drugs and that'll go off for drug testing, which it sounds like this already happened and they determined it was cocaine. Um, and then the packaging actually can go off and be processed um, in the latent print section for fingerprints or it can go off and be processed in the DNA section uh, to generate DNA profiles, or sometimes it can, it can, they can do both. I want to show people what uh, the size of a dime bag of cocaine would look like, basically. It's pretty small. Do you think that that has any significance for the work of the investigators trying to collect whatever evidence they might be able to on the baggie itself? Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, anything that's this small, this size is going to be hard um, both to get fingerprints and for DNA. Um, In particular for fingerprints, you know, um, the size of the bag, there's just not a lot of surface area on there. 
Um, and also, you know, depending on how often it's been held, has it been crumbled up in someone's pocket for a week or if it's pristine, that could, you know, depend how if you'll get fingerprints. Um, and in terms of DNA, um, also the size really makes a big difference. Um, it's really small. And so they'll have to swab it and then do the DNA analysis. And really what we're talking about is touch DNA. So, you know, someone that held this uh, Ziploc bag and they might leave traces of their DNA on there. So there's really not a large amount of DNA. So very often we don't get enough DNA to get a full pro profile. Additionally, we often get mixtures of more than one person's DNA. Um, that's because the item could have been handled by multiple people. Or even if I were to touch something, um, I might leave my DNA on it. But if I touch something prior to that, I might also carry other DNA on it. So very often on, on drug baggies like this, we get DNA mixtures. All right. Kath- Kathleen Corrado, thank you very much. And uh, it sounds like we'll be perhaps getting some answers next week as the investigation moves into a next phase, according to the Secret Service. I hope so. Thank you. And oddly enough, there is a long history of drugs at the White House for a lot of different reasons, of course. There's one thing that you wrote about a number of years ago uh, that happened in the 1970s, and I still can't believe it really happened. So I have to ask you, you wrote that when Jimmy Carter was president, you visited the White House, you snuck up onto the roof of the White House and smoked a joint. Is that, is that, is that something that... I hope that happened. You hope that happened? I really hope I did that. Well, it's worth noting that pot is now legal here in Washington, D.C., except on federal properties like the White House. But in 1989, Bush 41 brought a prop into the Oval Office during his anti-drug address. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake. This stuff is poison. And by the way, guess who gave the Democratic response to Bush's speech that night? And in line with what the president is calling for, we have to hold every drug user accountable because if there were no uh, no drug users, there would be no appetite for drugs, and there'd be no market for them. And more recently, Snoop Dogg made this claim. Have you ever smoked at the White House? In the bathroom. You did? In yeah. the White House? In the bathroom. Wow. wow. Not in the White House, but in the bathroom. Because I said, may I use the bathroom for a second? And they said, what are you going to do, number one and number two? I said, number two. <laughs> Who said this, the first lady? <laughs> <laughs> no, the CIA. <laughs> Or the FBI, the Alphabet Boys. So I said, look, when I do the number two, I usually, you know, have a cigarette or I light something to get the aroma right. And they right. said, well, you know what? You can light a piece of napkin. I said, I'll do that. And the napkin was this. <laughs> this is some story. <laughs> uh, something tells me that one may not be true. Snoop Dogg did, though, post this video of him uh, smoking outside of the White House. There he goes. Coming up next for us, the mayor of New York says that he has kept a picture of a slain officer in his wallet for decades, but 
The question now is, is that story even true? New allegations and the niece of that officer join me next live. There's new controversy tonight circling New York City's mayor, Eric Adams. Now, you may have seen or heard him reference this photo of a fallen NYPD officer. Mayor Adams claims that this is his friend and that he carries this photo with him in his wallet every day. Robert Venable was tragically killed in the line of duty in 1987. Go back to the days of thinking of Robert Venable, my close colleague who died in the line of duty. I still think about Robert. I keep a picture of Robert in my wallet. This photo appears a little bit weathered, which would make sense if he had in fact been carrying it around for decades. But according to the New York Times, it was actually just printed last year by City Hall employees who were directed to spill coffee on it to give it that older look. Now, the mayor's office is calling this report a false attack, saying in part, to be clear, Mayor Adams made a photocopy of a photograph of Officer Venable that was printed in an NYPD transit news bulletin from November 1987, which Mayor Adams still has possession of to this day and which the Times saw. Now, with us now is Meredith Benson. She's the niece of Robert Venable, and she joins me now. Meredith, thank you for being here. You told the New York Times. You told the New York Times initially that you would be disappointed if that story about the photo in his wallet were true. I wonder, do you still feel that way? To me, it's really not about the photo. What I am upset about is just that um, the New York Times wants to use the legacy of my uncle um, to kind of, to discredit the mayor. And that is not um, what my family is interested in at all. Do you, um, does it matter to you uh, that the mayor used your uncle's story to kind of show uh, this relationship over the years? What does that mean to you that he's been telling this story in the first place? Um, Gun violence is real and gun violence is what um, killed my uncle. And if his story can be used to help and gun violence in the city of New York, in the city that I love and that I was born and raised in, then by all means. Um, Eric Adams was someone who was definitely a friend of our family. He helped my family through a very difficult time through our trauma. And my grandmother held Eric in very high regard. And they had a wonderful relationship. And uh, my grandmother kept up with him over the years and was very excited and happy to see him, you know, get a master's degree and grow, grow up in the ranks of the Uh, New York City Police Department, and she was ecstatic when he became um, the Brooklyn Borough President. So um, he had enough of uh, a history with my family, and I think his story is genuine. Does it matter to you if the picture was staged? Does it matter to me if the picture was staged? I I Personally, I don't think he would do that. Um, I don't think he had a reason to do that. And I think um, his intention was to draw attention to gun violence. And I think um, his intention was to use the story of a friend, someone who who he had a relationship with prior to his death, um, to highlight that this scourge that's on our community still exists. And if he thinks about my uncle every day when he's 
writing legis helping to write legislation or working with the city and he thinks about the loss and the pain that my family still has, then by all means, use the story, use the photo and get it done. He's a mayor of the people. He's a mayor of New York City. And we expect him to do right by the city. All right. Meredith Benson, thank you very much for joining us tonight and sharing your family story with us. You're quite welcome. And GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis doubling down now on his campaign ad attacking Donald Trump for defending LGBTQ issues, as many people condemn that ad as homophobic. Coming up next, the president of the Log Cabin Republicans weighs in on that controversy. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis doubling down on a controversial video from his campaign slamming President Trump's vow to protect LGBTQ rights. And in an interview with conservative commentator Tommy Lahren, uh, DeSantis called the video totally fair game. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think, you know, identifying uh, Donald Trump as really being a pioneer in injecting gender ideology into the mainstream where he was having men compete against women in his beauty pageants. I think that's totally fair game because he's now campaigning saying the opposite, that he doesn't think that you should have uh, men competing in women's things like athletics. And for more, I want to bring in Charles Moran. He's the president of the Log Cabin Republicans here with me in the studio. These are DeSantis's first comments on this video. What do you make of his reaction? Well, just hearing his opening words talking about injecting gender ideology into the debate, the opening lines of that ad that his campaign retweeted have President Trump addressing the nation after the Pulse nightclub shooting. I don't know how addressing a national tragedy just miles from Governor DeSantis's then congressional district is injecting gender ideology. Look, it's very clear, and we've seen it from across the conservative spectrum Everyone agrees that this ad was misdirected, it was misplanned, and it was not setting the right tone. Uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement have moved beyond a lot of some of these divisive social issues. And there are truly threats out there from the extreme left and elements of the LGBT community who's trying to impose radical gender theory. But this video went in a totally different well, direction. Well, I mean, you say that the Republican Party has moved beyond that, but you know, a lot of people, advocates, LGBTQ advocates have been saying for a long time that the focus on trans issues would inevitably have a snowballing effect, uh, escalating the rhetoric against LGBTQ individuals. Has this rhetoric gotten out of control? Well, I, I think that the problem is actually that it's being lumped in as, quote, trans issues, but it's really radical gender theory. What we're seeing in some of these coloring books, some of the content that's being pushed out in primary education and, and higher education is not trans. And I really want to make that distinction between what are trans issues versus what is radical gender But as theory. you pointed out, the video actually targets LGBTQ people in general. Trump is in the video and, talking about LGBTQ people. And that's the real threat them. behind this video is instead of being very precise, and President Trump has actually been fairly precise in his criticism of radical gender theory, Governor DeSantis's ad paints a very broad stroke. Going after people like Caitlyn Jenner, people going after a drag queen named Lady Maga, these are not the problems that, that the conservative movement has typically been focused on, that a lot of the Republicans are focused on. The, like this ad was so misdirected 
towards what the real threat is. And the response from Governor DeSantis there was a total sidestep. He didn't address it. He didn't even address some of the most important things that were in that video. And he missed an opportunity that of something that brings all Americans together, definitely conservatives, around protecting women's sports, protecting women's spaces, preventing gender transition, permanent gender transition below the age of 18. Those are things with broad general agreement. Let and me, Governor DeSantis didn't focus on that. Do you think that this is disqualifying for DeSantis? I think that there's going to be a lot of people who look and listen to the argument that people make, which is allegedly that Governor DeSantis is more electable than Donald Trump. When you see things being put out like this from his campaign, it completely destroys that argument that he's more electable than Donald Trump. And it's actually been entertaining watching left-wing media sitting here and, and, and having a field day celebrating the fact that Donald Trump is actually more LGBT-inclusive than Ron DeSantis is after spending so many years demonizing President Trump and his record of achievement, doing things like promoting the end of HIV in America and calling on decriminalization of homosexuality internationally, which are things that President Trump was championing. All right, Charles Moran, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you coming thank in. You. And another classic American band is calling it quits. That story and Allison Camerata is next. It's an American classic, but the Eagles today are announcing that their upcoming tour will be their last, and they are not the only ones. Other artists are singing their swan song this year, including Aerosmith, Elton John, Kenny Loggins, Gladys Knight, Dead & Company, Foreigner, and Kiss. That's a lot of legends all in one year. Uh, so you better go get your tickets now. Thank you for joining me tonight. I'm Abby Phillips. CNN Tonight continues right now with my friend Allison Camerata. I know you'll be first in line. Well, yes, I did see the Eagles about two or three years ago. They were fantastic. I highly recommend it. But I also want to say this. I also saw the Rolling Stones farewell Ooh. tour in 1981. So I don't necessarily believe it when, right. I, when a band says it's their fa farewell tour. That's true. Yeah. That's true. But why take the chance? Exactly. Get your tickets. Yes. Out. You and I are going to kiss this summer. Exactly. All right, Abby, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Good show. Thanks. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have exclusive CNN reporting. Sources say that Jack Smith's investigators are asking witnesses about that angry and, quote, unhinged Oval Office meeting in which President Trump's team, a few weeks after he lost the election, pitched a plan to have the military seize voting machines and have President Trump invoke martial law. More of that reporting in a moment. Plus, Donald Trump's personal aide, Walt Nada who is charged with helping the former president hide classified documents and lying about it, just pleaded not guilty. He's now Donald Trump's co-defendant. And Donald Trump's political pack is paying Nada's legal fees. So how will that all work at trial? My panel has thoughts. And how Donald Trump's Republican rivals are making their cases tonight. Here's what Chris Christie told Jake Tapper about Donald Trump's woes. He could not, and still cannot to this day, deal with the fact that he's the only person outside the state of Delaware to ever lose to Joe Biden. And he wants to pretend he's still president. He takes these boxes with him. like He flies them up. They're in New Jersey now, if he still had them. They'd be in New Jersey because they go on summer vacation with him. I mean, he wanted to continue to pretend he was president and show these things to people and say, look what I still have. Look what I still know. 
Okay, but let's get right to our CNN exclusive, Jack Smith's investigators questioning witnesses about that, quote, unhinged Oval Office meeting in the final days of Donald Trump's presidency. Our senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez, is here with that. So, Evan, why are prosecutors zeroing in on that meeting? Well, Allison, uh, you'll remember that that is uh, unhinged is one word for it. Bonkers is another word for it. Uh, it was mid-December. And it was well after the fact, well after the the former president and his team realized that they were losing, that the time was up, and they had one last plan, harebrained plan, to try to preserve uh, Donald Trump's uh, time in office. And so they convened this meeting with a number of people. You had Sidney Powell, uh, who was one of his uh, legal advisors at the time, Patrick Byrne, former CEO of Overstock.com, Michael Flynn, his fired national security advisor, they came up with a number of ideas. One of them was to seize voting machines in some of these key states. Uh, another one was to declare martial law. Another one was to put Sidney Powell in as a special counsel to investigate some of these claims of, of vote fraud that they knew was or were already disproven. And so that's what this meeting was about. And we know that Jack Smith's uh, investigators have asked a number of witnesses about this months ago. And more recently, the, the, these, this, this meeting again became the subject of some of the witness testimony, including from Rudy Giuliani just a couple of uh, weeks ago when he went in for consecutive days of testimony. Uh, here's the January 6th committee taking testimony from a number of key witnesses who were privy to what happened at that unhinged bonkers meeting. Here you go. We were pushing back and we were asking one simple question. As a, as a general matter, where is the evidence? I mean, if, if it had been me sitting in his chair, I would have fired all of them that night and had him escorted out of the building. I think that it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in, it was late at night, it had been a long day. And what they were proposing, I thought was nuts. I'm going I'm to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that, that's, I, I'm almost certain the word was used. And that plan obviously ended up being thwarted by some of the White House advisors, some of the White House legal team that knew some of the stuff was just wrong and also illegal, perhaps. And so uh, we now know, uh, Allison, that uh, you know, this is something that Jack Smith's investigators have returned to. We know that near the, they're near the end of this investigation. And this is, uh, again, why uh, Caitlin Collins and some of our team uh, have heard about witnesses being asked these very questions. Allison? Okay, so Evan, also today, Trump's body man, meaning one of his personal aides, Walt Nada, pleaded right. not guilty. So what's next in this legal fight? Yeah, so he finally was able to enter this, this not guilty plea. Uh, it took about two minutes in court. Uh, he's tried a couple of times, but, you know, he got uh, he had, had problems getting a lawyer in Florida who is practicing uh, in Florida to represent him. So now we know that he and his co-defendant, the former president, are headed to trial. And, uh, you know, obviously the pressure has been on Nada to try to flip on the former president. We don't expect that to happen anytime soon, especially as because you know 
noted uh, at the top there that uh, Donald Trump's political committee is paying his legal fees. And so now uh, we see what, where, where this trial goes, whether we have a trial in December, as the Justice Department has uh, proposed, or whether it might happen sooner or even later, which is something obviously that perhaps might come to the advantage of the former president. Of course, you know, Nada is seen a lot of times in the company of Donald Trump, especially when he's out doing campaign stops. Allison. Yeah. Uh, Evan Perez, thank you very much for all of that reporting. Sure. Let's bring in our panel. Here with me tonight, we have Paul Krieger, former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, James Surowiecki, writer for The Atlantic and Fast Company, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, and senior political commentator Scott Jennings. Great to have all of you here tonight. Okay, so Paul, um, seizing voting machines, invoking martial law, uh, wanting Sidney Powell to be special counsel to investigate, you know, fake fraud. Obviously, none of this is how a democracy works. However, what's the crime? What, what are, is the crime that prosecutors are looking at with this unhinged meeting? Well, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I assume it's obstructing the election, obstructing a, a legitimate election and obstructing the results of those elections being carried out. And that meeting is obviously a crucial meeting where you have the former president and his advisors contemplating ways to, in fact, do the obstruction of the election. So I'm not surprised that Jack Smith and his team are focused on that. Um, yeah. I mean, what I was struck by, um, Ashley, when, when uh, Evan was talking, can you imagine if the guardrails didn't hold? I mean, that, that they were yelling at each other. Trump's team really wanted to do these things. And the White House lawyers had to say that's not how democracy, I mean, I don't know exactly what they said, right. but somehow they had to talk them out of these things. Right. That's why folks continuously say that our democracy is so fragile. And leading up to the elections, when Trump was showing his cards a bit, saying that he was questioning the, the legitimacy of the election, and before it even happened, people were saying, wait a minute, folks, we need to make sure that the right people are in place, not just at the federal level in the Oval Office, but those working the elections, those frontline election workers who eventually got death threats put on them. They testified in front of the January 6th committee. Thank goodness the guardrails held this time. You know, he still and many people in this field still are not saying that the election results of 2020 are real. And so we need to make sure we continue to be vigilant to protect our democracy. I mean, and Donald Trump is running again, Scott, obviously. Yeah. And uh, who knows who the people around him would be this time? I doubt it'll be Pat Cipollone, who was obviously critical in keeping things you know, on the rails there at the end of the Trump presidency. The thing about this uh, meeting that we're reporting on tonight, I think they may be asking about, is what happened between the end of that meeting and when Trump issued the tweet, mm -hmm. January 6th, it'll be wild. Because all these things you mentioned, the seizing of the machines, and those things ultimately didn't happen. But I'll tell you what did happen. The big rally on January 6th and the storming of the Capitol. And he obviously had tweeted about it in advance. So I'm wondering if that's part of the questioning. Did you hear any planning for what might happen on January 6th in the midst of these other things that we know about? That's a great point, James, because it was just a few hours after that yeah. meeting yeah, it was just that a few hours later. Donald Trump tweeted that out. Exactly. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about that meeting is that it was not scheduled. So Powell and Flynn and Patrick Byrne, who there was no reason for Patrick Byrne to be there. He has no, he's a random CEO, basically. They walked in and Eric Hirschman, who is one of Trump's advisors, saw them and was like, what? And then followed them in, and when he heard what Powell was saying, which was, you know, all the stuff she had been saying on Fox and, and elsewhere, um, he called Cipollone and said, you have to get down here. And that's when it all kind of erupted. So, you know, and Trump, we know from that, in that meeting, Trump kept being like, ah, I don't know if this is right. But they're giving me, they were giving him something that 
Hirschman and Cipollone were saying, you can't do this. And so you understand, you know, that's probably what Powell and Flynn were hoping for. And that's even Giuliani, you heard in that quote, like, it's all about toughness. So you, what do you want to do? What, yeah. so, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Paul, let's talk about the Walt Nada thing, because sure. now he and Donald Trump, his boss, are co-defendants. And they may be tried at the same time at a trial. But Donald Trump is paying for his legal fees. And so how is Walt Nada not beholden how will he be able to tell the truth freely and not be beholden to Donald Trump throughout this trial? Well, I think it's going to be challenging, not just because his legal fees are being paid. And it's by Trump's political pack. Let me be clear. Right. I'd say Donald Trump. Right. And who, Walt Nada's lawyers, who he's now retained today, I assume in their engagement with Walt Nada, are promising Walt Nada that their advice to him will not be influenced by the fact that their legal fees are being paid by Trump's pack. But it's easier said than done. And Walt Nada's ticket here and his sort of future is very hinged to Trump's wagon. So it's going to be challenging, I think, for a variety of reasons for him to get out from under Trump's shadow, even though one of his likely best defenses is, I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. I was just following the instructions of my boss. Yes, but that's where it gets complicated, Ashley, because he has a choice to make. He can either say, I was just following instructions, in which case he throws Donald Trump under the bus, Mm -hmm. or he has to say, I did this myself. I decided to lie. That's one of the things he's charged with to investigators and move boxes around of my own accord, in which case he goes to prison, theoretically. Well, even if in the moment he didn't know it was wrong, he has now had months, years at this point to say, I did know it was wrong and I'm not going to stand by Donald Trump's side. Instead, he is letting the person who is really the ringleader of this pay for his legal bills, which tells me he is a devout believer of Donald Trump. He is not going to turn his back. I think the unfortunate thing is that everyone in our legal system deserves representation. You hope, though, that that representation has your best interest at heart. And in this case, we just don't know the fact. We don't know that's the case because of who's paying for his legal bills. Well, I mean, you know, Trump has other people that have worked with Trump have obviously been thrown under the bus. Michael Cohen, Alan Weisselberg, who was the accountant. But they were kind of in on it. I don't know. When I think about not, I think about that line from The Great Gatsby where they're talking about Tom and Daisy Buchanan. And they say, like, they smashed up people and cre- things and creatures and then retreated back into their money and let other people clean up the mess they made. And I feel like what not, well, not a whatever he thinks now, like, he's kind of just getting thrown under the bus, basically. And, you know, he doesn't have to and isn't it likely yeah. that's what a jury might think that, you know, here you have this guy, military veteran working for the president or ex-president of the United States at this point, gets asked to move a few boxes. I mean, in Fort Pierce, I mean, is it likely that at least one member of a jury is going to say, yeah, I don't feel like sending Nada to jail over what maybe I mean, anyone I, else might have done? I think the big problem for him is is probably the lying to the FBI, which at least according to the indictment he did. Now, there may be ways to get around that, say, I didn't really understand the question, or I thought they were talking about X. That seems to me like the big, because I do think even the ignorance one of like, I don't, he just told me to move the boxes. I moved the boxes. I can see that being a, a defense that would work. The lying to, to federal officials is always like a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, especially since it's contradicted directly by his own text messages. You're saying that's what he'll get in trouble for? It's pretty hard to wiggle out of the line to the FBI on sort of straightforward questions where your text messages are directly contradictory. I'll tell you one way out of it. Donald Trump wins the election. And ultimately, I don't know when this trial is going to take place, but the ultimate legal defense for both of them is win the election. Absolutely. That's it. And then Donald Trump can also pardon him, et cetera. That's not a legal defense. (laughs) 
It's a clear. political Thank offense. You. That's a political <laughs> strategy. Cost taking liberties. That's a political defense. strategy. That's not a legal Great point. If you Excellent. know you broke the law yes. and you have the ability to say, I, I, yeah. I want to take responsibility for it, you do it. Thank you. Thank you, friends, very much. All right, was it something she said? Why Marjorie Taylor Greene is reportedly getting booted out of the right-wing Freedom Caucus. That's next. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has been voted out of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus. Maryland Congressman Andy Harris tells CNN they voted to boot her at the end of June. Now, remember, this is the congresswoman who has cozied up to white nationalists. She's questioned whether 9-11 really happened that way. She's blamed wildfires on Jewish space lasers. But according to Harris, the breaking point for the Freedom Caucus was when she called fellow Republican Lauren Boebert a little B-word. CNN political analyst Coleman Hughes joins the conversation now, along with James Sirwecki, Ashley Allison, and Scott Jennings. Okay, uh, Coleman, well, it's good to know they have standards. Yeah. Uh, I guess yeah. that was finally the breaking point. Why Jewish that? space lasers, reasonable. Calling someone a B-word, totally beyond the I pale. mean, explain it. How, how, why is this the, the straw that broke the camel's back? Look, we, we'd like to think that our representatives are in D.C., you know, pondering political philosophy and you know, debating in a high-minded way based on the principles of, of this great, great country. The reality may be that it's just like the high school cafeteria all over again, and the machinations of Congress obey the rules of basically high school. And that's, very, that's a very sad thing to contemplate, but I think that's what we're seeing here. Particularly, James, this fight. This felt very high school cafeteria. It did feel very high school cafeteria. I mean, there is obviously another backstory here, which is that a lot of the members of the House Freedom Caucus think that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been too cozy with Kevin McCarthy and has been, which the idea that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not right wing enough for you is a little peculiar, I think. So she's too cozy with Kevin McCarthy, but yep. they didn't mind when she went and spoke at a white nationalist conference no, last no, year. No, no, no. It's definitely much worse to actually be sort of, I mean, it's not even that Kevin McCarthy is a moderate, but I think that the House Freedom Caucus has been built on the idea of kind of uh, they basically are going to remain close, tightly knit, and that gives them their power. So if they feel as if MTG, sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene is sort of moving closer toward McCarthy, I think that that weakens, they feel like that weakens, and I think that's part of it. Was that the nail in the coffin, Scott? Well, I mean, her, her power at the moment is derived from the speaker. I mean, he has elevated her. She has become a key ally of his. You know, the House Freedom Caucus doesn't exactly exist to support leadership and the establishment and to govern and to, you know, pass bills and get things done. And now she's become part of that, which is an interesting evolution uh, for a firebrand like her. And so I'm guessing they didn't like that, this uh, this back and forth with Boebert. Um, I mean, it's an interesting cover story. I just, given all, I mean, the House Freedom Caucus sort of exists to, to torment and be mean to people and the rest of the Republican Party. <laughs> so the, to be punished <laughs> for, a, for a short conversation strikes me as a bit of a cover story. I, I, I think her evolution and movement towards House leadership, my guess, probably had more to do with it. Thoughts? Okay, first, I think you're giving high school cafeterias a bad rap <laughs> right now <laughs> compared to how the Freedom Caucus behaves sometimes on the House floor. Second, I think the House Freedom Caucus is trying to torment, you know, everyone that is not a part of their small caucus outside of even Republicans. I think that Scott's point is fair, though, in terms of she is aligning herself with Kevin McCarthy right now. But let's not forget, she's still extremely close to Donald Trump. If Kevin McCarthy becomes unpopular, she will 
align herself maybe in votes. They might not let her back into the caucus, but will still align herself with votes to boot Kevin McCarthy if that ultimately what the person who she truly follows, Donald Trump, says. So, I mean... I thought it was great when Democrats had the House and kicked her off of committees because of some of her behavior. Those are the standards that I think we should be holding people to. I also don't think you should be calling people out of their names on the House floor or in general in life. So applauding, I suppose, on that small standard from the Freedom Caucus in this moment. Wait, you're for something? No, The Freedom it, Caucus? Just, yeah. <laughs> I know, see, I knew it. <laughs> Cut it out. Uh, all right, let's move on to Ron DeSantis and where he stands in the uh, Republican primary right now. So he's raised $20 million in the second quarter, which is, of course, impressive. And his wife, Casey, is out with a campaign push called Mamas for DeSantis. And she uh, has put out this ad of what her husband stands for. So let's watch a piece of that. He do for America what he did for us in Florida. Schools open. Parents' rights defended. School choice universal. Critical race theory prohibited. DEI stopped. Child mutilation illegal. Girls' sports saved. Communities protected, our economy growing, and freedom guaranteed. Okay, Uh, James, child mutilation illegal? It's illegal everywhere, by the way. I mean, obviously they're referring to, you know, reassignment surgery, but that, it it was fact-checked by PolitiFact that that actually the governor's office could not provide PolitiFact any examples of this happening Happening. to a child. Yeah, yeah. I actually think that ad was, relatively speaking, well done. Uh, the, but, but the part you just showed, we just showed, was actually the sort of more positive side. I mean, sorry, it sounds strange to say, but that was the part about what DeSantis is accomplishing. The first half of the ad is this very bleak, kind of ponderous, like, things are going to hell or we're going to hell. And that, I think, has been kind of symptomatic of the problem I think DeSantis' campaign has had, which has been it's like been incredibly rage-filled and angry and kind of bitter. The second half of the ad, I think, is kind of pointing toward a direction that maybe DeSantis might go. The other thing I think is if you watch the end of that ad when Casey DeSantis is on, she's much better on camera than Ron DeSantis is. Like she's just much more natural and just seems you know, kind of much more winning. The last thing I'll say is I think the mama's thing just is kind of cringy. It's sort of, you know, off of the Sarah Palin mama bear stuff. And it just feels like, it just feels kind of cheesy. Casey DeSantis doesn't really seem like a mama exactly. And I, but, but I get where they're trying to go with this. Basically. I can see how it would be cringy to, to some, but I can also, if I try to put myself in the shoes of a mother that is upset about the fact that she had to mask her child pointlessly, upset about, say, the fact that her child wasn't able to go to school for a lot longer than they should have been, upset about the fact that there are some schools where a teacher will say, if if your child starts identifying as a different gender, I have no responsibility to tell you as the parent. If I'm I'm a parent that's upset about these kinds of issues, which are legitimate, I see that ad, and that actually activates the, the, you know, the mama bear or the papa bear in me, so to speak. So I think this angle may work for him. Yeah. Actually. I mean, many campaigns have taglines for constituency organizing. It's what I've really done my career on doing. I think that Casey DeSantis and Ron DeSantis are going to a specific component of their base, um, white women in their party, who did not vote for Hillary Clinton— 
Some came back and voted for Joe Biden saying, come back over here. You want to be on our team. The difference is, though, that might work in a Republican primary. But when you get into a general election, there are a lot more mothers out there that want to have bodily autonomy over themselves and their daughters, that want their children to be able to identify however they may want to, that actually do care about COVID protocols and safety and, and appreciate it, people taking precautions. I understand that it is a political tactic. I think it is short-lived and won't span if he is able to make it out of the primary. Ten seconds, Scott. Yeah, Casey DeSantis, incredibly effective campaigner, very good on camera, growing constituency in the Republican Party, these Moms who were really upset about what has gone on in the schools on a number of fronts. Uh, I think it's going to be a good tactic for her. Thank you all very much. All right. Now, where is Yevgeny Prigozhin? CNN's Matthew Chance met with Belarus's president and asked him just that. You'll hear it next. After the short, failed coup by Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, there was a lot of speculation over his whereabouts. Some reports said he'd been banished to Belarus. Well, today, CNN's Matthew Chance asked the Belarus president, Alexander Lukashenko, where is Yevgeny Prigozhin? Matthew Chance is here to tell us more. Matthew. Well, Alison, we were invited here to Minsk, the capital of Belarus, to meet with Alexander Lukashenko, the leader of the country, and a man who's been a pivotal figure in the dramatic events unfolding in this region over the past couple of weeks. He intervened during the armed insurgency in Russia last month and offered the Wagner mercenaries a deal to come to Belarus and to drop their armed rebellion. They agreed to do that. The, uh, the uprising dissipated. So when I spoke to him today, all any of us wanted to talk about was what had become of Wagner. Were they here? What was actually happening on the ground here in Belarus? Take a listen to what Alexander Lukashenko had to say. As far as I am informed, as of this morning, the Wagner fighters are now stationed at their regular camps where they go for rotation to rest and recover from the front lines. In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg, or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he's not on the territory of Belarus now. Well, Alison, there you have it. The revelation that Yevgeny Prigozhin is not actually here in Belarus, which is where we were told he had arrived in exile, taking that deal, nor are any of his Wagner soldiers so far. Alexander Lukashenko made a point, though, of saying he didn't know what would come next, he didn't know what was going to happen to Prigozhin, but he said he was certain that Prigozhin would not be killed by Putin. Putin, in his words, would not do him in. But I can tell you, it was extraordinary uh, to hear the president of the neighbouring country of Belarus actually raise it as a possibility that the Kremlin could assassinate the Wagner leader. And it's certainly not good news uh, for Prigozhin, who is now, uh, we think, inside Russia. Alison, back to you. Extraordinary, Matthew. Thank you very much for that reporting. Let's bring in CNN national security analyst Steve Hall and Max Boot, columnist for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Steve, are you as confident as Lukashenko is that Prigozhin will, has not been killed by Putin or will not be? No, I don't share his confidence, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, what is clear is that in the messiness that this has caused for Putin, that perhaps it's not the easy killing that he had that he had thought he might be able to do, just, you know, 
you know, assassinating him like he's done so many other people inside and outside of Russia. But that doesn't rule out the possibility that he might take a more um, well-worn path, uh, the path of Navalny and previously Khodorkovsky, uh, another fallen oligarch who essentially both of them, you know, served long prison sentences. We don't know whether Navalny were ever will ever get out. And and we didn't really know whether Khodorkovsky would get out too. A lot of times a prison sentence in Moscow is is can be the same as a death sentence. So either short-term or long-term, I'm still not uh, not particularly hopeful for Mr. Prigozhin. Max, what's the status of the Wagner troops? Because you just heard Lukashenko there say that they were back at their regular camps, but didn't Putin order them to um, join the Russian army or disband or go home? Well, those are great questions, Allison, to which I have very few good answers. I'm reminded of what Churchill said about Russia being a riddle uh, wrapped inside of a mystery uh, in a larger enigma. And I, it's very hard to know exactly what is going on here, but certainly one can assume that Putin is maybe having second thoughts about disbanding the Wagner Group because it is so useful to him, both in projecting power in the Middle East and in Africa, but also in fighting on the front lines in Ukraine, where the Wagner Group has been one of the most effective units in the Russian army. But clearly what's going on here, I think, is another signal of weakness on Putin's part. The fact that the Wagner Group could march within 120 miles of Moscow, could spark an armed rebellion, and their leader is still running around a free man, apparently collecting money that was confiscated from him by the Russian state. That is not a sign of a of a dictator uh, who has complete control of, of Russian society. It's a sign of a dictator who perhaps feels that he has to make deals with other power centers within Russia and perhaps does not feel that he can actually lock up Prigozhin, at least not yet. Gentlemen, I want you to watch what was playing on Russian TV today. So there are these videos that the state TV is putting out. This is reportedly of a raid of Prigozhin's house. So they descri- the Russian broadcasters, at least, were describing this as, quote, scandalous, what they found in there. And you can see in some of the videos, you can see that they found uh, cash, U.S. dollars. They found weapons. They found passports. They found wigs in this one. You can see all sorts of different colored wigs in Prigozhin's closet there. Uh, they found stuffed alligators, that you might be able to see on the right side there. There was all sorts of stuff in his apartment. Steve, why are Russian broad, why is Russian state TV putting this out? Well, let me start by saying Max is absolutely right. There's way too many questions here than there are, there are answers. But again, this what this appears to be is again going down that road of sort of beginning to build a public case legally. Uh, of course, that's kind of weird because in, in Moscow and in Russia, there is no rule of law, but they're building a public case against him with regard to crimina- criminality and corruption. But here's the problem. The problem is that Putin was on television not too many days ago saying, by the way, all that Wagner, all the Wagner stuff that you heard about, they're paid by the state. We are the ones who fund them. Putin said this publicly to all Russians who happen to be watching television at that time. So the Russians already know that if there's any corruption, all the money that they find, all the stuff that they have found in his apartment, if you put two and two two together, it's from the Kremlin. So how they're going to square this circle and just kind of hope that, I guess, the propaganda works, as it oftentimes does in Russia, uh, I think they're they're just starting to to build a case against him here for the Russian public because they're concerned about how the public is going to react he might have more popularity than Putin actually thinks. The messaging is off, Max? I think it's, 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 it's a very mixed bag because on the one hand, Putin has called Prigozhin a traitor, said he was an armed rebellion, 
There is this messaging on Russian TV to suggest that Prigozhin is corrupt and to discredit him. But again, at the same time, he's a free man. And apparently from the reports I've seen, he's actually been able to collect some of the articles and money that was confiscated from his apartment. So I think there is perhaps what we are perhaps seeing, Allison, is some ambivalence on the part of the Kremlin about what to do with Prigozhin, because on the one hand, he's a pain for Putin. But on the other hand, he's also a very useful thug for Putin. And we can speculate that perhaps Putin doesn't know exactly the best way to deal with him. But again, I want to stress, this is all speculation. We don't really know what is going on behind the scenes. And clearly, there's a lot of hidden deal making going on that we can only guess at. Yeah, it's pretty riveting to watch, even though we don't know exactly what's happening in there. Steve, Max, thank you both very much. All right, from fist fight to legal fight, Elon Musk threatening to sue Mark Zuckerberg. Is Threads a competitor or a copycat? That's next. The cage match between tech billionaires Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg is heating up. Musk's Twitter threatening to sue Zuckerberg's company, Meta, accusing the company of trade secret theft over the launch of Meta's new social media app called Threads. Threads launched yesterday and already reported 30 million user signups. And as of tonight, it's the number one free app in the Apple App Store. So joining me to discuss is Nick Thompson, CEO of The Atlantic and former Wired editor-in-chief. Nick, great to see you. Uh, So is Threads better than Twitter? It all depends on whether you're able to find your interests and the things you like. Um, And that's what makes a social network viable. Threads is a slightly cleaner, slightly simpler version of Twitter, but it really depends on who you follow and whether you follow the right people. Okay, that's very interesting because Twitter's lawyers call Threads a copycat app, and they say that Meta has, quote, engaged in systematic, willful, and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual properties. And when you look at it, I mean, you're right, like, Threads does look very similar to Twitter, so do they have a good case? Well, we're going to need to know a lot more than what is in that letter, right? Threads does look like Twitter. Twitter also looked a lot like Newsfeed, and in fact, Threads is taking most of its infrastructure from Instagram. So, We don't know exactly how much Threads copied from Twitter. Trade secret law is pretty complicated. You'd have to be able to show that there was some information that Twitter tried to keep hidden, that then Threads was somehow able to coerce employees into giving, and then they kind of went off and did it a little bit secretly. That's how those cases normally work. Twitter's recommendation algorithm is open source. Twitter's main features are fairly obvious and used by lots of apps. So we're gonna need to know a lot more before we know if there's a legal case for Twitter here. And Nick, what about Zuckerberg posting that he believes that threads will be a friendlier public space than Twitter? Um, How will he he control that? Well, there are a lot of ways to control that. It's really, there's several interesting things. So one will be more heavily moderated, most likely. They're importing the rules and the moderation standards from Instagram. Instagram is a heavily moderated platform, more so than Twitter. Musk has, in fact, gone in the opposite direction. He has been much more in favor of free speech, saying everybody can post, post what you want, taking a whole bunch of people who've been banned, putting them back on the platform. That appeals to a lot of people. The key question will be how the guts of the algorithm work, whether the algorithm promotes stories and promotes posts and promotes comments that are emotionally triggering, that start fights, or whether it does the opposite. And my guess is that based on where Facebook is right now, based on where Instagram is, they're gonna push really hard to have this be kinder, 
gentler, softer. They don't want to be the public square for big news fights. Twitter's more interested in that. So my guess is that is what threads will be. It will be a little simpler and kinder. Whether people will like that, I don't know. Fantastic. Nick, thank you for walking us through all of this. Great to talk to you tonight. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. We'll be right back. We're in the midst of a golden age of black television, and we've only arrived here after an 80-year struggle for black artists to be seen and heard on TV. Now, the new CNN original series, See It Loud, The History of Black Television, celebrates the creators who've brought black TV to life and looks at the impact it's had on American culture. Here's a preview. You know what time it is. When I think about the history of black television, really think about progress. For the longest time, we were footnotes in history. It is so important for us to have African-American representation. We talked about things that nobody in this country was willing to have a discussion about. I was like, Martin, can you believe they call us icons? That was one of the first times I saw myself in the sci-fi genre. That show was so successful, it launched Bravo Network. We have Tyler Perry, who owns a studio. In 1950, you could have never have imagined it. This was an era to be as loud as possible and as black as possible. We are the story. Joining me now is Justin Simeon. He's the creator of the film Dear White People and the Netflix series of the same name. Justin, great to have you here. Great to be here. So, Justin, some of these TV shows were my favorite, as were you know, as they were for millions of Americans. But I've never thought of them as black television until now. You know, the Jeffersons, the Cosbys, Good Times, all of that. So, tell me about the role that black TV has had on all of us, even if we weren't aware of it, and why it's so mm-hmm. important for this series to celebrate it. I mean, the thing about television is that it's an intimate art form. It's an intimate form of cinema. So. Uh, you know, when you go to the movies, you're expecting a spectacle. You're expecting to be blown away on the edge of your seats. When you're watching a TV show, you're expecting to be brought into the interior world of a character. It's almost like you're hanging out with your friends or you're, you're sort of like a voyeur, uh, a voyeur in terms of uh, a group of people that you don't know well, but you want to know. Um, I think that it brings the lives of Black people into people's homes. And whether you're a Black person, you go, oh, my God, their lives are just like mine or you're not a black person and you go, oh my God, those guys, those, those people's lives are just like mine. It creates a sense of, um, of empathy uh, for black people that I think is really unique to the television art form. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so your show, Dear White People, was part of this wave of black TV shows like Atlanta or Insecure, and it featured this new generation of black creators and characters and stories. And so what was your vision for your show? Uh, my vision was to uh, basically take what was, you know, maybe salacious or exciting or interesting about the movie and do that thing that we just talked about, which is bring characters into uh, the homes of, of, of people that normally they didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, relationship with. All of the characters in Dear White People, the minute you see them on screen, uh, the way they look and what they say about themselves leads you to kind of stereotype them, frankly. You think of them as very specific kinds of people. But then as the show unfolds, you actually get to know what's really underneath it. Uh, and I think it brings a lot of complexities, or at least the mission was to bring a lot of complexities of Black life uh, into the forefront and into people's living rooms. And so as I understand it, there was backlash 
to it when it first premiered, which was, I guess now, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Were you expecting that? Yeah, there's always backlash when, when black people do things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was backlash when the movie came out. There was backlash when the first season came out, when the second season came out, when the third season came out, when the fourth season came out. The truth is though, is that we uh, are one of the rare shows that went four seasons on Netflix. And I think that that's a testament to um, you know, some of this backlash sort of being from perhaps a small group of people screaming very, very loudly. Uh, I think Netflix, uh, you know, did quite well uh, in spite of the so-called backlash. So what, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I just, uh, I just finished my, my next movie, Haunted Mansion, which uh, comes to theaters July 28th. Right on. All right. Well, we'll check that out. And uh, we will certainly tune in for the all-new CNN original series, See It Loud, The History of Black Television. It premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN. Thanks, Justin. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. It's great being a part of this film. Thanks for watching CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.